So for those, those of you who don't know, my name is Mike. Um, I'm married to Lindsay. Um, we celebrated 15 years of marriage this week, which is... Yes, it's a momentous occasion. You, um, Neil said to me, congratulations. I, thought, I said, I think you should be congratulating Lindsay more than me because she's put up with me for the last 15 years. So um, I, I work for Neil and Kate who run the Southwest London Vineyard um, and they are away this weekend. So Neil has asked me to share with you about Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's quite fitting that we examine this triumphal entry of Jesus on the same day that we celebrate our final Sunday in this building before we move to the ark next week. Um, Just to give you some background, this church met at the ark, what was then Elliot School, for just over 21 years um, before they, uh, they needed to renovate it. So they threw us out. We moved here five years ago and... This building's been a real blessing to us. The school's been a blessing to us. They, they've um, opened their doors to us every Sunday, except one when we had a flood about a week ago. I mean, about a month ago. So it was quite fitting that at that stage we knew that we were moving to the ark. Um, anyway, they've wor- they finished the work at the ark. They spent 21 million pounds, 31 million pounds, a bunch of money anyway. More money than you or I have got, or in anyone. 35 million. There we go. Yes, exactly. So the work's been completed, and they are so excited about having us back. They obviously are chuffed to have our money that we pay them to be there every week, but they're also just so excited about partnering with us in the local community. They're keen for us to get involved in mentoring some of their sixth-form students, and we're really excited about going. It feels like we are moving home. So um, it's going to be a joyous occasion. So next Sunday, don't come here, because we won't be here. In fact, the gates will probably be locked. So if you come here next Sunday and the gates are locked, just remember that we're just up the road. As I said, go on the website from about Tuesday or Wednesday. All the details will be there. And we're going to be celebrating being back there by holding a baptism service. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized and would like to be baptized, come and chat to me after the service. Contact the church office during the week. We would love to baptize you. We love baptisms. They're a joyous occasion. And if you haven't been baptized, it's a great thing. Okay, so back to Palm Sunday. This weekend, churches around the world are celebrating Palm Sunday. It's a holiday where Christians around the world, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant or Evangelical, celebrate the coming of the King Jesus into Jerusalem and the beginning of Holy Week. This Thursday is going to be the anniversary of Jesus' Last Supper, the Passover that he celebrated with his disciples. Friday, of course, is Good Friday. Because because we're moving this year, we're not holding a Good Friday service. So, um, you know, by all means, go and bless one of your local churches Go and um, give them our, our greeting and um, yeah, just pop in and say hi. But then come back to us on Sunday. Um, so Friday is Good Friday, the celebration of Jesus' death for our sins on the cross. And next Sunday is Easter Sunday, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But Palm Sunday begins 
all of this with the celebration of the arrival of, of the king into Jerusalem. And I was thinking about spectacular arrivals that, that I've known in my lifetime. One of the most relevant arrivals to me was when Nelson Mandela was released from prison after being, being imprisoned um, by, the, by the South African government at that time for over 27 years. And the day he was released, he, um, he walked out of a prison uh, just outside Cape Town to um, stampeding crowds. They rushed him into a car, drove him across to, to Cape Town, and he addressed a crowd at the town hall where apparently there were 50,000 people there. Um, and, you know, as many of you know, he went on bec- to become a world-renowned statesman and changed the face of South African politics forever. The other scene that springs to mind when you think of a joyful arrivals is this clip, which many of you will know of, um, part of which, part of this movie actually was filmed at the Ark. So have a look at this. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion is starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. So, there you go. Um... Arrivals gates. I mean, we, you know, we, as, as you may tell, we are not from this country. We have lots of people coming to visit us, fortunately, family members and friends. And um, Arrivals are, are just such joyous occasions. Departure gates, on the other hand, um, not my favorite places. Um, but arrival gates are awesome. And, and you stand there, and as the doors open and each person walks through, everyone's craning to see if they can spot their friends or family coming through the gate. And it's just, everyone loves a homecoming. You know, I, I spent six years at, at a boarding school that was on the other side of the country. I used to fly backwards and forwards to school um, for six weeks at a time. And, you know, arriving through those, those arrivals gates was a seriously joyous occasion for us every time. So everyone loves a homecoming. Everyone loves a parade. And Palm Sunday celebrates perhaps the greatest arrival in, the, in history, the arrival of the Messianic King, King Jesus into Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. A spontaneous parade breaks out in his honor. People begin shouting and singing. So, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 21. The words should appear up there. Awesome. So we'll read from verse 1. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came into Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that The crowds that then went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. So Lord, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that... um, that you've sent your word to to teach us and to guide us and to encourage us. And we lift it up to you this morning. We pray that that you will open up our hearts to hear you, Lord. I pray that you will use my voice to to speak and um, that you will come and that you will will change hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So starting in verses 2 and 3, we read this. Jesus saying, Saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Our commentators generally agree that in verses 2 and 3, we have a demonstration of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. It's not absolutely clear that these specific events were not prearranged by Jesus with the agreement of the owners of the donkey. But the way the story is told is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, and it appears that the gospel writers are telling us these facts to demonstrate Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Throughout the Bible, we read about people with prophetic giftings who know things that they could not know through natural means. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we read about a prophet named Samuel, who is asked by the future king of Israel, King Saul, if Samuel knows the location of some donkeys that Saul's father had lost. These donkeys wandered off and Saul couldn't find them. He goes to the prophet and says, Do you know where my father's animals are? And the prophet has a very specific word for him, even down to how many loaves of bread he will be given along the way by the people he encounters. It's a regular occurrence in the Bible that people are given very specific information about other people and events that they couldn't know through natural means. Now, this gift of prophecy is a gift that God continues to give today. It didn't end with the writing of the Bible or the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So let me ask you guys a question today. How many of you have actually heard from God? Not necessarily with an audible voice, but perhaps through a deep inner impression, a dream, a vision, just a quiet voice in your head? How many of you from time to time been given information from God about an individual situation that you could not have known through natural means? And most of the time, the voice of God sounds very much like you and me. It's not, some, it's not the deep, booming tones of 
David Suchet or James Earl Jones. Do you remember? This is CNN. Does he still do that? I don't watch CNN anymore. Anyway, does, he doesn't sound like James Earl Jones most of the time. He just sounds like you and me. And the ability to hear from God is a key building block in developing an intimate relationship with God. For those of you interested in perhaps developing your capacity to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your own life, you might want to check out one of the recordings from this year's National Vineyard Leaders Conference. There was a guy named Julian Adams who did a workshop on prophecy. And he's got some great insights into it. And it's, yeah, it's just, just teaching us how to, how to hear from God. And let's face it, which of us here doesn't want to hear from God more often? So if you go onto the Vineyard Church's website, they've got all the teachings on there. There's, some, there's his and, and many other wonderful ones. So just check it out. It's, there's loads of good stuff on there. Anyway, so Jesus was always tuned into the voice of God. Now, whether Jesus knew this through natural means or through supernatural means, let's look at the message that he actually gives to his disciples. He says to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So the idea here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, everything that you have ought to be at the disposal of the Lord. So that at any given time, the Lord might speak to you and say, Now I need this particular thing, this specific sum of money, this particular room, or car, or camper van, or bongo, um, <laughs> or vacation home. I need it for my use. There's a, there's a great story about a little boy who, who spent months building a little model sailboat. He glued all the pieces together. He set all the sails in place. Once it was completed, he took it down to the local pond and he put it on the pond and a gust of wind came along and blew it all the way across to the other side of the pond where there was a group of boys who picked it up and ran off with it. So, I mean, the little dude was distraught. And a couple of weeks later, he was wandering down the high street and he saw his boat for sale in a shop window. So he went in and he spoke to the shop owner and he said, look, this is my boat. And the guy said, look, I'm sorry, I, I, I paid for it. I, some guys came in and said that they had made it, and I bought it off them. But I'll sell it to you for the same price that I paid for it. So the boy dug in his pocket, got a few pounds out, paid for his boat, and walking back with his boat, he, he started speaking to it. And he said to the boat, you are doubly mine. Mine because I made you, and mine because I bought you. And it's the same with us. This is what God says to us. This is what God says about every, everything that we have. You are doubly mine. Mine because I'm your creator. And mine because I'm your redeemer and bought your life with the price of my son's blood on the cross. All that we have belongs to God. It is doubly his through creation and redemption. So, let me ask us all a very simple question. Can we honestly say that our stuff is at the disposal of the Lord? If we are followers of Christ, do we really have the heart attitude that says, I see that everything that I have belongs to the Lord. It is not, not mine from which I generously give God 10% as a tithe. It is all his. And God generously allows me to keep 90% or 80% or 70% or 50% or whatever percentage 
of his income. But he has a right to ask me for this stuff whenever he wants it. We need to keep regularly asking God, what do you want me to do with my stuff? Is this our mindset? It ought to be if we are followers of Christ. And it is not only our stuff that belongs to God, but we also belong to God. We are doubly bought by creation and redemption through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, we're talking about the coming of the king today. Do you want to know who the king comes to? The king comes to people who are available to the king. And it's so easy for us to not be available to him in this day and age. How many of us climb onto the bus or onto the tube, headphones in, bury our noses in our books? Just a clear message to people to leave us alone. Don't talk to me. Don't disturb me. This is my time. How many of us are so caught up in our own lives that we don't make ourselves available to God to use us to extend his kingdom? We come here on a Sunday morning and we cry out for more of him, but only when it really suits us. The interruptions in our lives that we resent so much are often the Lord coming to us in the guise of another person. There's an old saying that we use here in the vineyard, that the only ability God is looking for from anyone is availability. Who are the people of God? Who are the people God comes for? People who are available to him. People whose time and stuff is at the Lord's disposal. Now, notice the peculiar way that the Lord comes. Verse 4 and 5 says this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king's coming is peculiar. It's ambiguous. On the one hand, he comes as the king. He's riding a donkey, which was the mount for Jewish kings throughout the Bible. But we see that the way he comes was not the expected way. He's not riding a war horse on a chariot. Jesus came differently. Jesus, the messianic king, came to Jerusalem, according to the prophecy of Zechariah, gentle. The word gentle is actually a bad translation, according to many people. A much better translation would be humble or meek. Zechariah's prophecy uses the Hebrew word ani, which means afflicted or oppressed. Often ani refers to a poor person, person who's reduced to begging. So what they're actually saying is Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the king who is afflicted. He's a king, clearly a king, but a king who so identifies with our pain and our afflictions and our needs that Messiah comes as a humble king, as an afflicted king, as a beggar king. Consider the contrast between the way God comes into the world and the way the world attracts attention. This is the world's approach to success. Grab the spotlight. Get as much publicity as you possibly can. Draw as much attention towards yourself as you can. Have everyone talk about you. Be the subject of newspaper articles and radio talk shows, and you'll be a success. Get on Big Brother. Become a Kardashian. Become the next apprentice. Grab your 15 minutes of fame and milk it for all it's worth. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is so different than the showboating, hype, spotlight-grabbing, political and marketing machines of today's society. He comes as the humble king. And let me press on this a bit further. How does the kingdom of God spread? 
of big advertising campaigns. Sure, we have campaigns for Alpha and National Prayer Week that's coming up at the end of May. But the kingdom of God actually spreads in a low-key way as one friend offers to pray for another friend in the workplace. As one follower of Jesus talks over a quiet lunch about, the Jesus, about Jesus with someone who is going through a divorce. As someone comes along to our job club and discovers that we're not another government department, but actually just the local church doing what Jesus has called us to do. So many of Jesus' parables about the kingdom focus upon the kingdom's hiddenness, about its secrecy. The kingdom is described as a treasure hidden in a field. It's not obvious. It doesn't come with trumpets and fanfare. It's more like a quiet voice in your head than a message flashing across the screens at Piccadilly Circus. Some years ago, the Pope, one of the popes, wrote a wonderful book called Crossing the Threshold of Hope. In this book, he answered a, question, a series of questions about the Christian life. One of the questions the Pope answered was, if God does exist, why is he hiding? Why has he not gone more public? Why does God not make things more unmistakable so that we might believe. The Pope answered this in a suitably wise manner. He said, God has gone public, but in a way that many people might miss him. God has gone public by entering this world in the form of a man, by becoming incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. Could God have gone further in stooping down to us, in drawing near to us? The truth, the Pope says, is that God has gone as far as it is possible to go. He could not go any further. Do you know that the, the Messianic king's? Do you know what the Messianic king's throne was? His throne was a cross. On the cross, written in three languages: Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, were the words "Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews." What a peculiar way the king comes into this world. So, why did the king come? Verses six to eight say this. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkeys and the colt and placed their cloaks, their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds who saw Jesus hailed him as the son of David. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The great conquering Messiah. They threw palm branches down the way their ancestors threw palm branches before Judah Maccabee, the Jewish general. He was the, the general that, that defeated the Greeks, I think it was. Scholars? Yeah? <laughs> um, he defeated the Greeks uh, many, many years before. And... Um, they spread garments the way people in the Old Testament welcomed the conquering king. To update this image, they literally rolled out the red carpet for him. So, let's set the scene here. Thousands of pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Passover is the holiday that reminds Jewish people of their freedom from foreign oppression and freedom from slavery and God's interve intervention defeating their enemies. And these Jewish pilgrims begin shouting during this Passover season, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the highest. They were shouting, Messiah, save us. Why are they shouting Hosanna? These phrases 
they were shouting were borrowed from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So Psalm 118 is part of a collection of psalms that go from 113 to 118. In Hebrew, they are called the Hallel. It means praise. And this Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118, is something that would have been sung in every Jewish home at Passover time in that day. It's still sung today, and Passover seder dinners all over the world. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem with the words of the Hillel, Save us now, Lord. Everything seems so hopeful. The people were filled with expectation. Messiah is coming, and he is going to fulfill everything Passover stands for. He's going to give us freedom from, the, from oppression. God is going to intervene and throw our enemies out the way he did with the Egyptians, the way he did with Judah Maccabee. And just five days later, another halal is sung at the Last Supper of Jesus. Jesus separates the Passover seder with his followers. They finish the meal, and as it says in Matthew 26, verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So virtually the last words that Jesus would have sung on the night that he was betrayed were the words from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So he comes into Jerusalem with the words of the Hillel. Save us, Lord, ringing in his ears. And Jesus goes out to be crucified with the same words. Save us, Lord, ringing in his ears. Never have the same words been spoken just a few days apart in such different circumstances, having such different meanings. So what do you think these people were expecting when they shouted, Hosanna, save us, Lord? They were expecting Jesus to lead a revolt against the Romans. They were expecting something like what Judah Maccabee did in overthrowing the Greeks. Something like what Moses did in setting them free from the Egyptians. Save us, Lord. Fulfill our national hopes. Restore the nation of Israel to its former glory. And what is it they got? A few days later, this messianic king was arrested. He was humiliated, beaten by the Romans. This Jesus, who they called the son of David, their last best hope, Rome decided to make an example of this Jesus and crushes him under their feet. They strip Jesus naked and they crucify him. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed for something and gotten exactly the opposite of what you prayed for? Um, as I mentioned earlier, Lindsay and I are not from this country. We were born and spent most of our, our lives in Zimbabwe. Um, and the people there have been praying for the last 17 years to be rescued from a government that's carried out unthinkable acts. They've killed tens of thousands of innocent people. They've destroyed their economy again and again. They've caused mass homelessness. And all the while, people are playing, praying to be rescued from it. And they're still waiting to this day. I think what you see in the story is the mismatch of our ways, of our ways and God's ways. The mismatch of what we ask God for and what God actually delivers. Because what you see here is a paradigm, a model for, for much of our lives as followers of Christ, 
We pray, save us, Lord. Do this particular thing. Find us a spouse. Heal a loved one's affliction. Grant us a job. Bless us with children. And the absolute opposite happens. Our loved ones get sicker. Uh, We remain single. We don't get a job. We remain childless. But you see, that's not the end of the story because God always hears our prayers and he answers this prayer, save us, in a way that went so far beyond what the people knew or understood. God had something so much better in mind, so much greater than saving a little first century country from its particular national enemy. God intended that this messianic king, God intended this messianic king to save the entire world to rescue all of humanity from what ultimately oppresses us. And what ultimately oppresses us is not some government. What ultimately oppresses us is our sin, the sins and the sins of other people towards us. It's because of sin that we experience alienation from God. It's because of our sin that we experience broken relationships. It's because of our sin that we find ourselves addicted and in bondage to powers and forces too great for us. We find ourselves addicted to alcohol and drugs and broken sexual practices, addicted to food, addicted to work. Sin keeps down our marriages. Sin breaks down our families. Sin breaks down our emotional life. Sin keeps us from being able to forgive other people. Sin keeps us from being able to receive forgiveness from God. God sent Jesus into the world to answer the prayer, save us. But God answered the prayer in a way utterly unexpected by the people. Any of you all know Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21? God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So are you in a situation this morning where you've been praying and praying and you feel like you're getting exactly the opposite of what you sought God for? I'd like you to to consider today that God may be wanting to grant you something that is immeasurably better than anything you could ask or imagine. The people who are crying out to save us couldn't imagine that this Jesus truly was going to save them in a way that went so far beyond what they were seeking. You've got to believe that God is good, that his purpose for your life is good. And whenever you're in a situation where you say, you know, God doesn't seem to be answering. I wonder if God cares. I seem to be experiencing exactly the opposite. I would like you to hide this in your heart, that this God is at work. But his ways are different than our ways. His methods are so far beyond our imagination. And his purpose for us goes beyond what we could ask or ever think. When Lindsay and I um, made our lifelong commitment to each other 15 years ago, we had great dreams of what our life in Zimbabwe was going to look like for us. We were going to own a farm. We were going to have a huge family, somewhere between two and six kids, depending on who you speak to. (laughs) Um, We were going to have cats and dogs, and we were going to grow up um, in the land of milk and honey. Um, But... We wouldn't exchange those dreams for the life that he's given us in London. We were just sitting, um, chatting this week on our our anniversary, and we just went, you know, it's 
the dreams we had were, were wonderful, but the life that he's given us is just immeasurably better. The people we've met, the blessings we've received, this, well, I mean, we wouldn't be part of this amazing church and, and we wouldn't give that up for the world. We had no idea how, his, how different his plans were and how much better they were than ours. So this story closes in verses 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The people were wondering, Who is this Jesus? The halal that I spoke about before, Psalm 113 to 118, the halal that they were shouting at Jesus as he came into Jerusalem, the halal that Jesus sang before he went out to be betrayed and crucified, this halal from Psalm 118 tells us who this Jesus is. Verses 22 and 24 says this, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is very marvelous in our eyes. The Lord, has done, the Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Jesus regularly quoted this. So did the rest of the New Testament writers in reference to Jesus. Do you want to know who Jesus is? Jesus was the stone the builders rejected. But he became the capstone. The stone that is the apex of the arch that holds the arch together. So who is Jesus. Jesus is the stone that was rejected. People are still rejecting the stone named Jesus today. People say, I don't need Jesus to build a family. I can build a family just fine without Jesus. I don't need Jesus to build a marriage. My marriage will be just fine. Just me and my spouse. We don't need Jesus, we don't need Jesus to hold the two of us together. I don't know how they say that. Literally, it's a, it's a mystery to me. <laughs> I, people say, I don't need Jesus to build a life. I can build a life with my own resources, on my own. I've got all the materials I need in myself to build a great life. People say, I don't have any cracks. There are no holes that require the stone named Jesus to fill. I've got it all together. Who is this Jesus? He is the one sent by God to be king. He is the one sent by God to save us. He is the stone that you and I need to fill the holes and the cracks of our lives. And if you don't already know this Jesus, and you want him to be the cornerstone of your life, the rock that you build your very existence on, then we would love to pray for you today. We're going to have a bit of time after the service to do that. Um, what we're going to do now is, as the, bad, as, as the band comes back, um, we're going to take some time to, to give thanks for, for the last five years that we've been here. So we'll stand. We're going to gather together in threes and fours, and it's under here.